means we can all listen to the sunny side of sports. Great show, bro. This is sunny side of sports. Right here on the Voice of America. Voice of America. Sporty greetings to all our Voice of America listeners. This is VOA Sonny Young in Washington. Welcome to the June 16th edition of the Sunny Side of Sports. We're now 29 days away to the start of the World Athletics Championships, which will be held in the northwest U.S. city of Eugene, Oregon. This marks the first time the United States has hosted the World Championships, and it also marks the beginning of what World Athletics President Sebastian Coe describes as a six-week bonanza for athletics fans around the world. The World Athletics Championships will be followed by the Commonwealth Games, from July 28th to August 8th in Birmingham, England. And then the European Athletics Championships will follow in Munich, Germany from August 15th to August 21st. American sprinter Gabby Thomas is hoping to win her first World Championship medal in Eugene. Last year in Eugene, Gabby became the third fastest woman of all time in the 200 meters, clocking 21.61 seconds at the U.S. Olympic trials. She then went on to win two medals at the Tokyo Olympics, a bronze at 200 meters and a silver in the 4 by 100 meters team relay. The energetic Andy Edwards caught up with Gabby Thomas recently at the Birmingham Diamond League meet in England. Here's Andy. Um, Gabby, you've had a very good start to the season, um, doing well, winning in Doha over 200. <laughs> you've got an Olympic bronze for the 200, but you're running the 100 in Birmingham. Uh, do you see yourself as an all-round sprinter or is the one slightly the, the lesser discipline? <laughs> as of right now, the one is slightly the lesser discipline. I would like for it to be up to par with my 200. Um, I do have a silver medal in the 4x1, which I anchor for the USA. So I think I've proven myself a little bit in terms of competition and just even making that team. Um, but yeah, I'm working on it. So that my, I think the 100 will help my 200, right? So that's the first part of the race. Um, but I also just want to be a strong contender in that event. It's a big season, um, lots going on in terms of global championships. The world championships in Eugene, Oregon, a track town as it's described. Um, can you give us a feel of what, especially for American athletes, that, that signifies to be competing in Eugene? Because quite often track and field in the USA is overlooked yeah. by Americans. Yeah, I, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I, I think it's going to be great for just athletics in America to have world championships in Eugene, Oregon. I mean, one, we have Hayward, which is a beautiful stadium. It's new. It's it's fantastic, and the energy is always so exciting for the athletes. Um, so I think we're going to post some really like blazing performances and marks, and I, I'm really excited for that. Um, and all the athletes who have not competed there yet, they're going to be in for a really great surprise because it's such an amazing place to compete. But furthermore, just having the attention on athletics for a little while in America um, um, it is overlooked, as you said, and I'm excited for people to just kind of be awakened to it and to see how exciting it can be and to have some attention on it. Um, and every four years in America, people love watching the Olympics. So it's great that we can build off that momentum and just bring world championships to the USA. And I think that'll be really great for the sport there. Uh, and just lastly, I have to admit, I was less aware of your scholastic stardom, shall we say, um, uh, <laughs> knowing full well what you'd achieved on the track. Now, you're a Harvard graduate, uh, an epidemiologist, I think, with 
the coronavirus and the <laughs> lockdown, that's a specialty. What is your career going to be combining scholarly work with track? Yeah, so I went to Harvard and I wanted to do research. My, my major was neurobiology. And when I graduated, I wanted to kind of make a difference in the world and focus on health inequities and health disparities um, because it was something that I was seeing so frequently in the U.S. So I wanted to study public health. And I landed on epidemiology because I think it's really important for me, someone who looks like me as a black woman in the U.S., to have that foundation and to bring that into epidemiological studies. Um, so I'm excited about it going forward. And when I when I finish and retire with track, which is kind of a long ways down the road now, um, I would like to go in the uh, healthcare administration or hospital administration and just kind of make a difference in that world. Well, all the best to the track and later on in your medical career. Thanks very much, Gabby. Thank you. <laughs> That's American sprinter Gabby Thomas, a two-time Olympic medalist. And Gabby spoke with the energetic Andy Edwards in Birmingham, England. Hi, guys. I'm Ferdinand Omanyala, the fastest man in Africa, African 100-meter record holder. And now you're listening to Sunny's Side of Sports on The Voice of America. Ferdinand Omanyala believes he's capable of running 9.6 seconds in the 100 meters at the World Championships in Eugene next month. Omanyala set the African record of 9.77 seconds at the Kip Kano Classic meet last year in Nairobi, Kenya. And at the recent African Championships in Mauritius, Omanyala won the gold medal in 9.93 seconds. He told Kenya's The Daily Nation newspaper, and I quote, I am an athlete who thrives under pressure, and I am eyeing to run 9.6 in Oregon. It will be summer in Oregon. Hence, warm weather is good for sprints. Three-time Olympic hammer champion and four-time world champion Anita Lodarczyk of Poland will miss the rest of the season because of a thigh injury that required surgery. Lodarczyk said on social media that she totally severed her thigh muscle while chasing a thief trying to break into her car in Warsaw. Lodarczyk says she will do everything to come back again to the top. The 36-year-old Polish athlete is arguably the greatest women's hammer thrower in history. Anita Lodarczyk has won 16 career medals, including 14 gold in international competitions. I'm VOA's Sonny Young, and you're listening to the sunny side of sports on The Voice of America. Heather Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Wake up, dance this music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week 
right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station, Saturdays and Sundays at 1500 and 2000 UTC. Thanks, Heather. The National Basketball Association finals resume later Thursday night in Boston, Massachusetts. The Boston Celtics trail the Golden State Warriors three games to two. And the Celtics will try to stave off elimination with a victory on their home court. Heading into game six, one player getting some of the NBA final spotlight is Warriors guard Clay Thompson. He's earned the nickname Game Six Clay because of his history of big Game Six playoff performances. I realize I'm on a, a really good streak right now of Game Sixes, and I don't know how long that will last. It's obviously a nickname I earned. I want to live up to it, but at the same time, I, I don't want to go in there and play hero ball. I'm just going to go in there and be myself and do what I've been doing the last few games, and I know that will uh, allow us to be successful. Six years ago, a very successful playoff performance, the greatest playoff performance of Clay Thompson's NBA career, helped inspire the Game 6 Clay nickname. With the Warriors facing elimination against the Oklahoma City Thunder in Game 6 of the 2016 Western Conference Finals, Clay Thompson made 11 three-point shots on his way to a playoff career-high 41 points in a comeback victory. His backcourt partner, Stephen Curry, comments on the Game 6 Clay nickname. I will in no way infringe upon that nickname uh, for Clay. I'm just going to do my job and, and try to help us get a win, enjoy what that would actually mean. But Game 6 Clay is, I don't know, I don't know how he, he's been able to do it. Like Just his personality, no moments too big for him in terms of just just hooping and enjoying himself and embracing hostile crowds or if we're at home enjoying the home the home atmosphere obviously the okc game is the one that's at the top of the list in terms of how much that meant individually and for us as a team to come back in that series so he has a uh a knack for those type of big moments um it just so happened to be game six, and he has another opportunity to add to that. Steph Curry also has another opportunity to add to his winning legacy. The two-time league most valuable player is bidding for his fourth NBA trophy after winning the title previously in 2015, 2017, and 2018. Steph and the Warriors lost the 2016 NBA Finals to the Cleveland Cavaliers, four games to three, and they lost the 2019 NBA Finals to the Toronto Raptors, four games to two. So this is the sixth time Steph Curry has played in the NBA Finals. Thankfully, I think, having been here six times and been in a lot of different closeout type of opportunities, you just understand what the the nerves are like. So you can rely on that experience for sure. We understand the specifics of how we need to approach the game from a physicality perspective, our, our, our game plan adjustments from game five to game six, understanding what the building is going to feel like 
you know, in that energy and being prepared for it. So you got to remind yourself of that as much as you can before the game starts. But at the end of the day, once you get out there, you have to just be in the moment. You got to be, you know, present as much as possible, not worry about the consequences of a win or a loss. Because all the only opportunity you have is is, is that 48 minutes. Um, and the more you can kind of trick your mind into just being in the moment and staying there, that's the best advice I can give anybody in that situation. Because um, it's going to be the hardest game you've probably ever played in your career. Uh, because of what the stakes are. The Celtics know what the stakes are. They need to win game six later Thursday night or their season is over. And the Celtics will likely need a big game from their star forward, Jason Tatum. It's the first of four. So it's like, it's not over with. Uh, So as long as it's not over with, you got a chance. And I think having done it before, you know, should give you even more confidence that you can. Not that it's going to be easy or it's going to be given to us, uh, you know, but, you know, you should be extremely confident as long as you got a chance. If Jason Tatum and the Celtics can win game six on Thursday night in Boston, the decisive game seven of the NBA finals will be played on Sunday night. In San Francisco, California, I'm VOA's Sonny Young in Washington, and you're listening to the sunny side of sports on The Voice of America. Hi, this is Larry London, the host of VOA's Border Crossings, where we feature music and interviews along with your favorite artists from around the world. and interact live with us here in Washington, D.C. Hello, Shireen. Hello, Larry. How are you? Good. How are you tonight? Border Crossings comes to you Monday through Friday at 1500 UTC GMT. Thanks, Larry. That's Larry London, a man who's always ready to cross musical borders. I encourage our sunny side of sports listeners to follow me on Facebook and Twitter. My Facebook address is facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny. Once again, that address, facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny. And my Twitter handle is at VOA Sunny Sports. Once again, my Twitter handle at VOA Sunny Sports. As I reflect on personal sunny side of sports highlights during the first half of 2022, one highlight has to be my first trip to Rwanda for special coverage of the Men's Basketball Africa League, or BAL. The Tunisian club U.S. Monastir lifted the BAL trophy after beating Petro de Luanda of Angola 83-72 in the final in Kigali, Rwanda. In the quarterfinals, Monastir trounced the Cape Town Tigers from South Africa, 106-67. I said a brief hello to Tigers captain Peter Prinsloo after the lopsided loss. Before the Kigali competition, Peter spoke by telephone from Cape Town with me and VOA super producer Muck Bill Yabarro. 
And I asked Peter for his general thoughts on the Tigers making their BAL debut in Cairo, Egypt. Obviously, it's an honor for everybody to play in the BAL. There's, you know, only 12 uh, teams in the whole continent that's playing. But, uh, you know, for us, it really gave us a good uh, outside of what's to come and what we have to prepare for, for the, you know, for the playoffs in Kigali. Um, you see the level of talent that's being brought by all the teams, and we understand that uh, we have to get better and do things like that. But, you know, it's it, it was a good way to get some of these guys ready, especially in terms of our national players who haven't maybe stepped on a court with that level of competition. So now everybody really has a gauge of what level they need to play at for us to be successful. We've learned that when we play together as a team, we move the ball and, you know, we play proper basketball. Uh, we're a great team. Um, those are the stretches that we've shown so far where we play maybe 20 to 25 minutes of good basketball out of the 40. But then we, you know, we've learned that when we become a selfish team and, you know, uh, guys force up quick shots or we don't move the ball and get stagnant that, we make life a lot harder for ourselves. So, you know, we know we got to work on things like that when we go back home. Peter, the Tigers uh, were a debut team uh, in Cairo, and uh, one of the teams you played, FAP, more maybe more experienced. They've they've been around. They played last year in the BAL, uh, and, and some of these teams have been around a long time, like uh, Zamalek. Uh, you know, they've been around for over fifty years. Cape Town, relatively new team uh, in terms of formation. Uh, can you talk a little bit about maybe the following you have in Cape Town as a new team? So, you know, that's, you know, in our in South Africa, basketball isn't the biggest sport out of everything. So it's been a, a real process uh, from management, you know, a lot of marketing to broadcast the team and, you know, get people aware that there are, you know, there's a professional basketball team here in Cape Town that plays in the BAL. And we've now collectively over the last year with the qualifiers and now actually, you know, making the playoffs for BIL, seen a big rise in the amount of people that's following us in the community, um, arriving to a good reception today at the airport where people were waiting for us. Um, so, you know, we've seen a steady growth in the, the fan base for the basketball, and that's been part of the mission of this club to really create awareness of the sport and actually build a whole basketball community where kids know that there's a future for them if they want to play the sport. Peter, you've had an extensive uh, professional career, having played in uh, Latin America and Africa. My question to you would be, uh, how's the energy level been in Cairo in comparison to the other places that you've played in? No, I mean, um, obviously still you're still affected by COVID times. Uh, when you're playing, it's a huge arena, so... You know, it would be sometimes if a full arena like that is, you know, completely full of people, then it makes a big difference. But the whole basketball energy, uh, it's such a high level of talent. You know, guys that are very high, you know, guys that former NBA players, you know, G League guys, they really have a influx of talent that's along with all the African talent that we have on the continent. So it's a very high level of basketball. And, you know, you have to be focused every game. So... You know, certain countries overseas, I've had, you know, great fan bases. But, you know, this level of basketball is arguably, outside of Champions League, the highest that I've seen in my career. Peter, the uh, Basketball Africa League changed its format uh, for its second season uh, last year. Uh, basically a compressed two-week schedule uh, in Kigali, Rwanda. And this year, three phases. Uh, the league started off in Senegal and then it moved to Egypt, 
and it will wind up with the Basketball Africa League playoffs uh, in Rwanda. Do you like that format, that kind of tiered approach to the league? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's the league is still adjusting after COVID. Uh, you know, last year it was a complete bubble. This year, similarly, still, you know, besides being able to move around in the hotel, you're still in a bubble. So I feel like the COVID, uh, you know, pandemic not completely being finished still has an impact. Um, but it's good. I mean, obviously, for the sport, you know, if they can have multiple hubs each year, you know, and increase it. So this year was two. Maybe next year, say four or six hubs where they're playing games before you know you move to a playoff location like Kigali, uh, because obviously with the facility and the arena they've built in Kigali, it's it's an amazing site to play basketball. So have more features in different big cities across Africa uh, based on you know your teams that did better the season before, and then you know grow from there because that's why it's just going to reach a bigger community of people. As for the uh, the grassroots development of uh basketball in the continent of Africa. We we all know that the continent of Africa has some of the most talented athletes ever and basketball and the NBA has had its fair share of African players. But now knowing that they're taking this type of a approach, having some of these younger players, some as young as 15 years old playing in this tournament, um what are your thoughts on that on them investing this um in, into the continent? I mean, I think it's it's an amazing thing. Um, we've like we said, we've all seen NBA players from Africa within the NBA, but now you can really use this to, at a young age, groom talent. And now, similar to how Euroleague works, and guys that are 19 in Euroleague getting drafted, you know, that's been playing. Guys like Luka Doncic have been playing in Euroleague since they're 16, 17 years old. Um, you know, now you give an opportunity for guys in Africa to get the same, you know, the same looks. Uh, so now you have young talent here that can be taken over to the NBA that sometimes would have been missed because this this kid never had a chance to play, you know, in front of the right people. So you're also looking at potentially a league that in five to ten years from now that could be on the same level as the NBA and even bigger than your league. So, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing that they're doing that, you know, because now they're giving just a new platform for these kids to be seen, and it's going to just keep promoting the, uh, you know, growth, the overall growth of the sport because now people are really going to invest into basketball at a younger age, and it's just going to keep growing all the communities over the, over the continent. To also uh, keep it on the NBA, um, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite guys. Sporting greetings. This is Masai Ujiri, the president of Toronto Raptors Basketball, president of Giants of Africa Foundation. You are listening to the sunny side of sports on The Voice of America. Masai Ujiri is such a brilliant mind when it comes to basketball. And um, what, what are your thoughts on what he's been able to do with the Toronto Raptors um, organization and what he's doing um, on the continent as well, trying to expand the game? I mean, no, what he's doing personally, like the turnaround that he's had, and even if you look at the current roster, the way he's, the draft picks they're taking, you know, the talent they're grooming and, you know, the signings they make, uh, he's an incredible GM. Um, I mean, what he's done, he's brought a brought championship to Toronto. I don't think anybody would have possibly expected that at any given moment. You know, most guys don't want to go live in Canada, uh, you know, to go play there. They want to stay in the United States. 
Um, so, you know, it's it's a harder for them to, you know, look as a free agent, uh, you know, fight all the time. But, you know, what he's been able to do through them drafting the right players, making the right trades, and, you know, signing, being able to sign good players, they, it's incredible. Uh, and, I mean, obviously for the continent of Africa, having somebody like that investing their time, it just means so much for the sport. Uh, now you have a guy who's been highly successful at, you know, doing what he does and creating these opportunities and, you know, being a smart-minded basketball person. If he's really into, you know, grooming and growing the whole basketball community in Africa and really expanding the sport, you know, it's going to be successful. Getting back to the Tigers, uh, they have an American ownership group. Uh, can you talk about uh, maybe the Tigers' owners? Uh, are they supportive of the club and this uh inaugural basketball africa league campaign oh yeah no i mean uh we have very you know hands-on owners we all know who they are um you know so it's an ownership group out of the united states you know two men and two women um and it's really you know their vision is to grow this you know sport here in south africa they've seen for them they, they understand what basketball in south africa could be and they really want to, you know, grow a community here where people are, you know, following the sport. Now young kids are starting to, you know, they've got a juniors team and a women's team and everything else. So, the, you know, our owners are highly supportive and highly invested into the sport here, uh, you know, especially because they understand what, you know, platforms Africa can bring, maybe potentially being a hub for one of the, you know, windows of the AL every year. So... No, our owners are great in that aspect. Uh, you know, they make sure that they bring in the right talent uh, for what we need to do to play our style of basketball. And, you know, at this point, I don't think anybody can, you know, even remotely not say how amazing a job they've done with Cape Town Tigers for a club that was just formed two years ago to be playing the BL already. It's It's incredible. Peter Prinsloo is the captain of the Cape Town Tigers basketball team. Peter has been uh, speaking with us from Cape Town, South Africa. And, Peter, thank you for uh, joining us uh, here on The Voice of America. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me tonight. Appreciate it. Hi, I'm Kim Lewis. Join me for a special edition of PCUSA with guest award-winning historian and author Jesse Holland as he takes us on the journey of how the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act was signed into law this year and will examine the legacy of Juneteenth, a celebration of freedom for many African Americans. Join me for PCUSA this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Thanks, Kim. I met more than a few sports fans when I was in Rwanda last month, and the Basketball Africa League certainly wasn't the only sporting highlight during the first half of 2022. In this encore sunny side of sports presentation, Ejen Uimana reports on the Tour du Rwanda cycling stage race held in the country in February. Let's give a sunny side of sports salute to 22-year-old Eritrean cyclist Nathanael Testefazian. For a second time, he's the overall winner of the Tour de Rwanda after covering more than 913 kilometers in 23 hours, 25 minutes and 34 seconds. Testefazian competes for the Italian team Drone Hopper. He said his experience climbing highly sections 
of the eight stage course helped him a lot. They are really happy and thank you to all my teammates and uh, all my fans and my family uh, also for uh, Rwanda. I feel good and I keep the jersey. Yeah, because uh, I know this climb the 2020. I, I climbed this three times this climb. Meanwhile, Rwandan rider Moise Mujisha won Sunday's eighth and final stage. He competes for the South African team Pool Touch and he clocked 2 hours 8 minutes and 16 seconds for the 75-kilometer distance. The Tour de Rwanda began February 20th. The Ukrainian Anatoly Budyak posted an emotional win in stage 6 as his victory occurred amid the Russian invasion of his country. Nicolas Belomo, the European ambassador to Rwanda, comments. The fact that the Ukrainian uh, cyclists won this uh, uh, stage, I think, brings some hope. And we really hope that, uh, you know, peace will prevail. We, we sincerely uh, hope that this event will also play a role. And we really congratulate this Ukrainian uh, cyclist. And I hope that uh, it will bring uh, at least a, a moment of uh, joy in a very difficult time. There was a moment of joy for the South African cyclist Kent Main, who won stage four in three hours, 17 minutes and 40 seconds. The Tour de Rwanda was upgraded in 2019 to a category of 2.1 event. For the sunny side of sports, I am Eugene Uimana in Chigari, Rwanda. And that wraps up the June 16th edition of the show. Thank you for tuning in. I get it. I'm VOA's Sunny Young in Washington, and that's the sunny side of sports.